does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hey, good morning to you on a Wednesday that feels like a Monday, but it's in fact closer to the weekend than you think. Jake Query here along with Kevin Bowen, Mark Dykton here as well. It's Kevin and Query, 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Hope you had a wonderful Independence Day celebration, whether that be a one-day or multi-day event for you. For the Pacers, busy time as well. Over the course of the long weekend, we now know that Tyrese Halliburton is, and I can't believe, Kevin, We and this just shows, I mean, we, we've been off for a few days and things kind of jumble together. Tyrese Halliburton agreeing in principle to a five-year, $260 million contract extension with the Pacers. That, that $260 million, which is a staggering amount, obviously, that's if all incentives and and different things come into play. So that's not a guarantee that he gets that full amount. But nonetheless, it's what like two oh seven, right? Is that the yeah? And there's all guarantee. kinds of like all know, NBA type stuff. Exactly. But on top of that, uh, but the important thing is, and there are, there are several avenues that we're going to go with this. But that's item number one, Halliburton. Then you have the players coming in through free agency or through some maneuvering by Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan and the group. Obi Toppin coming in from New York. Uh, Bruce Brown Jr. from Denver. The players they lose. Chris Duarte, who apparently is traded for some second-round picks. Um, and as well, O'Shea Brissett, who signed as a free agent elsewhere. So I think the Pacers roster probably now is pretty set. And we'll begin with, Kevin, the Halliburton news before we get to talking about the free agents and how they fit in. For Halliburton, it's obviously a major win for the obvious reasons, and that is simply this. But I think it's what it represents. There has been, for the fan base of the Pacers, for probably the perception of the Pacers, you have... And, and I always base in sports things on precedent. And in this market, you had Reggie Miller, who was long the face of the franchise. But that was a slightly different era in terms of free agency, in terms of contractual, you know, the money, everything else. There were just a lot of things that go into play. Reggie played his entire career here and became a legend for that. But since then, I think that you could safely say there have been three players, maybe four, that at some point it was determined what they were in fact the face of the franchise or the next Reggie Miller. People I think were longing for, thirsting for, striving for getting that guy that that they could buy their kids a jersey of that guy when the kid was in second grade and the kid would have it all the way up into when they were in high school. Jermaine O'Neal would have been one. But Jermaine O'Neal very good player, but but it's difficult sometimes I think for for that guy to be somebody that like the ball isn't going through on every single set, but more so, I, I think with Jermaine O'Neal, um, you know, injuries came into play. There were just a number of things. The brawl, obviously, but wonderful player. And I think retroactively, people now can look back and go, you know what, he was a really darn good player here, but just never fully grasped the whole franchise player thing. I think in his mind he did, but 
But then you go to Paul George and Oladipo. We've gone over that a million times in what happened there. And that both of those two players grew into their NBA stardom before our very eyes. But then, Kevin, they outgrew it in their mind. They outgrew Indianapolis. And they felt like they had interests outside of basketball that Indianapolis could not facilitate for them be it entertainment be it fashion be it singing be it you know whatever it might be the brand of pg the brand of oladipo they wanted to go elsewhere and i think that created in the fan base here and probably to some extent the franchise a ptsd kevin pritchard in particular was heartbroken when victor oladipo left and or or when he you know when they when they moved him because he he for for the obvious reasons so Tyrese Halliburton, I think there was hesitation of, are, are we going to get all excited and then get left at the altar again? And in fact, he grabbed their their hand and said, I do. And I think people here should be excited by that. Yeah, and, and I could have egg on my face, Jake, a handful of years down the road, but I firmly believe this is going to end a lot differently than the other two ended. Uh, now the Pacers have got to do their part, and that's a big ask, particularly in a market like this where it's not easy to satisfy that that star but I do think how Tyrese is wired uh, the Midwest connections um, his appreciation for what Indiana provided him in that trade I think it's going down the right path and of course a lot totally can agree. change over the next handful of years well, and, you know, I, I mean for five years I got him right right um but you know how that is in the NBA. I mean, players no, tend right. to dictate things before the contract uh, calls for a, for an end or another decision to be made. Um, to me, it's a contract that you obviously had to give him. Uh, I, I am curious, and we'll you know get into more of this and when the details get out on the contract. Is there a player option at all within this contract? I think that would be a big, big part of you know how things could go down a different path at some point. And when you look at it, and I'm not saying that Miles Turner and Buddy Heald aren't part of the next two to three years at all, but they do, or both of them are nearing the end of their respective contracts. You know, Turner's only two more years and Heald is in a contract year. So you're going to have an ability next year to where you will still have a good amount of cap space, even with Halliburton's contract skyrocketing coming up next year. It's an extension. So this year he still plays on his rookie deal. Next year is when this thing kicks in. So you still will have an ability to try and attract someone next year. And I brought this up a couple weeks ago. And I'm not saying this is the end-all, be-all, but I think you heard from guys after games last season have a high, high appreciation for how Tyrese Halliburton plays the game of basketball. And I'm talking about opponents of the Pacers. And later this summer, he's going to play with Team USA. And it's not the Team USA team that we're necessarily used to of, you know, insert your dream team sort of roster, and they're going for a gold medal in the Olympics. This is the World Cup. But there's still some pretty attractive names on that roster with Halliburton. And how will word of mouth play? And how will those guys kind of react to saying, oh, wow, I love playing with Halliburton. That could be fun. Um, I am interested to see how all of that plays out. So the fact that, you know, less than 18 months ago, Kevin Pritchard and a major hat hat tip to him, you know, finally realized, okay, the two bigs is not working. So let's break up something that is not working. And in return... You traded away, and nothing against Sabonis, who's a wonderful player, but it just wasn't working here. And just got a big extension in Sacramento, by the way. Right. And in return, you now have a potential side of the building, perennial all-star type of player. 
at a position that matters more than a big man. Like that is absolutely monumental to trying to change the trajectory of your franchise. So I think over the weekend, it was just a reminder of, wow, how quickly things could change, how wonderful that that move was. And now, and again, I know the pieces of Bruce Brown and Obi Toppin aren't necessarily going to be leading off Sports Center by any means. But now the question becomes, what can you do as a franchise to organically grow it and then also continue to build around it to keep Halliburton and move the Pacers into more of a, hey, we're the feel-good story to we're a legit team in the Eastern Conference. Okay, Bruce Brown, let's talk about that signing. To me, it is very significant. And it is a lot of people asked over the course of the weekend, like, what do you think of the Bruce Brown signing? And my answer for you is Barry Bonds to right center. Major home run. And I'll tell you why. It doesn't jump out at you as an elite, you know, it's not like he has the elite level free agent status in terms of name recognition or splash. But, we'll go back to my term earlier about precedent. Oftentimes when a team wins a championship, their auxiliary pieces get plucked away because everybody wants a small piece of that championship. That guy's got a ring. We, you know, He knows how to win. We need to get – look at that. They had a championship team, so all of their players are champions. We've got to get one of those and, and pull it off of the tree. In terms of the Indianapolis Colts, which is the one championship team of modern era that we can relate to here in the city of Indianapolis, I'll go to Cato June. Cato June was a wonderful player for the Colts. Good player on a championship team. And then he goes elsewhere. I believe it was Tampa that signed him as a free agent and had high expectation for him because he was a guy that was a starter on a championship team and was a wonderful player for the Colts and fit perfectly for what the Colts wanted to do and their blueprint for a championship and the schemes that they ran. But then Cato June gets plugged into a system where now all of a sudden they are expecting an elevated role from him and a little bit different system. And he did not have the same footing that he had as an Indianapolis Colt. Great player, great guy. But there are other players for the Colts that you see that with. And you see this all the time. When when players are on a championship-winning team and they go elsewhere and people assume that because they were guy four or five or six, well, you know, but he was on a championship team. He's really a two or a three. And they try to elevate him or get him outside of his role. Bruce Brown Jr. for the Denver Nuggets was a guy that was at times a lockdown defender who could hit open shots if it came to him and you didn't have to design through him, but he could, in an auxiliary role, score for you and give you pop offensively. But most importantly, he could play multiple positions and guard. And the Pacers had an opening on their roster and went out and sought for a guy that could at times be a lockdown defender that could hit open shots when not facilitated through them, but if it rotates through and they have the ability to score within the flow of a set, but could play multiple areas 
notably on the defensive end. Bruce Brown Jr. is a huge signing for the Indiana Pacers because they are going to ask him to do exactly what he did in Denver and not try to elevate him beyond that, but rather keep him within his exact comfort zone, number one. And number two, you could say that they overpaid for him. And in the open market, that might be the case, except for the fact that he is bringing exactly to the Pacers what the Pacers need. He is worth that value to Indiana, more so than maybe to Phoenix or Atlanta or or Portland or whoever. He's worth that to the Pacers. And Kevin, most importantly, Bruce Brown Jr. does really, really well exactly what the Pacers really sucked at. Yeah, uh-huh. And he fills that exact void. He is the perfect blueprint for what it was in the terms of player of the piece of the Trivial Pursuit pie that they needed. Yeah, if you're going to overpay, which I say that in quotes, do it for your weaknesses. Correct. And do it for a modern, versatile, um, kind of interchangeable piece. And I do think that's what Bruce Brown brings. I also think we lose sight of this at times. And I know I've brought it up before, but you know, this is a franchise that hasn't won a playoff game in a handful of years. Playoff game in a handful of years. Look around the NBA. Over two-thirds of the league have won a playoff game since the Pacers last in. They haven't won a series in almost a decade. You know, Bruce Brown, a guy that took his game to another level in the playoffs comes over here and all of a sudden walks into a locker room where he looks around and he's like, guys, have any of you even played in the playoffs? Have any of you even played in the playoffs recently? Like, no one in that locker room knows how to win at a real, real level, or at least hasn't haven't done it in recent years. You know, Turner's case, you got to go way back to early in his NBA career. Obviously, Halliburton and Buddy Heald certainly don't come from a winning culture at all. Um, you know, Matherin is still young. Some of these guys are still young in that realm. Uh, and then, you know, when I say overpay in quotes, I think people lose sight of, and this is more of an indictment probably on Kevin Pritchard's poor drafting than anything leading into this. The reason why you had to overpay is because you had to get to a salary floor. I mean, there is a salary floor. I think the Pacers, if I'm not mistaken, I think they entered this offseason with $32 million in cap space. And again, we'll have Scott Agnes on tomorrow to double check this. I believe they had to get to 18 of that $32 million just to get to that NBA requirement that teams have to pay from a salary cap floor standpoint. And again, the reason why the Pacers had to do that is because they swung and missed on Holiday and Leaf and Goga and Duarte and all of them. So you haven't had to pay anybody on your roster any significant money here in recent years outside of Turner. And so that's why you had to pay Bruce Brown so much. When I when the Bruce Brown made move was made, I tweet out a couple of thoughts, and I feel like they're relevant to share here. Versatile with the presence at the end of the floor where the Pacers stink. He brings defense, the Pacers stink there. He took his game to another level in the playoffs and finals. That stands out to me. You know, this isn't a guy that when the lights got bright, he kind of wilted. He he rose. I mean, he was big for Denver right. in those playoff games. This is the part that I think we cannot lose sight of. And I know this gets a little into the nerd cap side of it. But the Pacers gave him a two-year contract where the second year is a team option. Correct. Meaning if if it doesn't work out, they're out. So this is like a pseudo-contract year for him with this one-year deal. So you're not paying him massive amounts of money. When you say overpay, I guess it's an overpay for one year. And again, I don't necessarily agree with that. But I think this is very smart and wise to keep it on the short term. If you want to maneuver after a couple years, you can certainly do that. Um, So I thought that might have been the best aspect to all of this. It's that you gave him a two-year deal. The second year is a team option. If things go swimmingly well, boom, 
You pick up that option, and he's an important piece for you. I understand some people push back and say, oh, you got a log jam at the two and three, and where does he exactly fit? He's 6'4". I think his wingspan kind of makes up for a little bit of lack of height. There is a lot of questions to be answered about lineup and fit and all of that, but if I'm going to have a log jam anywhere, it's better to have a log jam at guards and forwards than it is point guards and centers. And in recent years, the Pacers have had way too much of a log jam with point guards and centers. We have all had that experience where you put on a jacket you haven't worn in a while, you reach in the pocket, and lo and behold, there's like a 20 in there, and you're like, oh, found money. Huge bonus. 20. Gosh, I'm just hoping for a golden dollar. <laughs> a 10, a 5. I that that jacket fits. What, yep, well, <laughs> that might have happened, actually, for Kevin Pritchard and the Pacers over the course of the weekend. We'll explain that and then talk to the guy that's going to head up their summer league team. That conversation in 33 minutes on Kevin and Query. All right, let's head to the Payless Liquors hotline. He is the head coach of the Indiana Pacers coming up in summer league action. First game Saturday evening, I believe it's 8 Eastern here back on, uh, for us, that, that matters here from a viewing standpoint, I believe ESPN2 as well. Uh, Gennaro Pargo, the Pacers assistant, who again will lead the Summer League uh, team coming up here for a handful of games out in Vegas, joins us now. Coach, good morning to you. Are we packed and ready to go to Vegas? Good morning. We are packed and uh, we got practice today and then we're getting out of here. Coach, I'm really curious about this, and I appreciate your time this morning. Let's begin with this in terms of of coaching Summer League. You know, in terms of the mindset, like how much does the organization, I guess, guide you on how they want you to coach? And I know that sounds weird, but hopefully you can get what I'm saying there. In terms of, you know, it's got to be 50-50, right? I mean, you're wanting guys to develop, but you're also wanting to be in situations where they're they're learning, winning, and, and working together. How do you approach it from a coaching standpoint just in terms of the roster, the minutes that you're allocating so that everybody kind of is getting an equal evaluation? That's a great question. Um, yeah, and it is kind of 50-50. Uh, it's, a, it's a growth development process, not only for the players, but for our coaches as well. Uh, we're all doing uh, new things, having new responsibilities. So uh, it's a growth and learning experience for, for coaches, but also our players – uh, put them in different situations that we that we maybe want to look at during the regular season. Um, uh, the guys that for sure that they're, they're going to be on our roster want to get those guys a lot of minutes, and um, like I said, just help those guys develop by by getting in game action. And um, it's a, it's a two way street. Uh, Rick and the organization is doing a great job of allowing me to uh, to kind of put in some of my own my own. Uh, basketball things, so uh, it's been a great experience so far. Again, Janera Pargo is with us. He's coaching the Pacers Summer League here coming up Saturday night, their first game. You mentioned some of those guys. You mentioned kind of coachability. I think Benedict Matherin would probably fall into that category. Um, what was it that you guys wanted Matherin to work on as he headed off for his first kind of real offseason in, in the NBA? And then now that he is going to be with you for, we'll see how many games out there in Vegas, uh, how has he returned and how's he looking here in year two? Well, some of the things we want him to work on was just uh, his ball handling, being able to create uh, plays for 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 others. Uh, he's a he's a, a heck of a one on one player. Um, we also want to put him some in some ISO situations and get some numbers from that. Um, he's come back hungry. You know, um, I think someone asked the question. Uh, you know, is he trying to win or is he just trying to work on his game? And 
he kind of gave him a stare, like, no, I'm playing. I'm, I'm trying to win. Uh, so his attitude, his leadership has been great. Uh, and we're looking forward to, uh, uh, to seeing what we're going to see from him this summer. You know, you played Gennaro. Gennaro Pargo is our guest. He's going to be coaching the Pacers in Summer League. You played in the league, and you had a very circuitous route to get there. I mean, you came into the league. You played for, I think, seven different franchises. You played in different countries. You played in the G League. You played where there was opportunity. Does that give you a more unique perspective than some coaches in terms of being able to see somebody that might be playing in the Pacers Summer League that everybody else overlooks and you can connect with and see that vision of that guy has what it takes. That guy has the resiliency that's necessary. How much does your experience as a player help you evaluate as a coach? Uh, I think it helps tremendously. Um, just seeing um, a guy's attitude and work ethic when he's not playing. Uh, I think that says a lot about a player uh, because it's easy to come in the gym and work hard knowing that you're going to get minutes and, you know, you're going to get shot attempts. But when you don't know and things are not necessarily going your way, how do you respond? How do you react? How do you work? And I think when you have a guy that's um, doing all the right things, saying all the right things, has the right attitude, and then when his number is called, he's able to go out and perform. Um, those are the kind of guys you're looking for in the summer league, guys who can fill up the end of your, end of your roster, uh, high-character guys that, uh, that knows what it takes to be ready to play at all times. You know, I do want to get back to the Pacers for just a second, but Jake's question kind of made me think of this. You, you obviously played the league for over a decade. Who is the player that you don't think got enough credit, whether it was on your own team or an opposing player that you feel like from the whatever uh, media doesn't give enough credit for how that, uh, how that player was? Uh, first guy came to mind is, uh, is the Luau Dane. Hmm. Um, yeah, Luau Dane was an incredible leader, uh, worked very hard, um, turned himself into a heck of a player. I think averaged close to maybe 20 points a game. And uh, he was one of the leaders of those, those Chicago Bulls teams, uh, you know, led by Derrick Rose and Joe Kim Noah. Um, those guys get a lot of credit, but uh, I think Luau Dane was uh, – one of the guys who, who was a leader on that team, uh, a great scorer on that team, and uh, probably doesn't get enough credit. Will, will you, over the course of the summer, Coach, will you come up with, or has the, just for example, you know, has Kevin Pritchard or Rick Carlisle, Chad Buchanan, at any point do they ask you to or do you set up scenarios or, or systems or plays specifically for a particular player? So, in other words, if you go into a game, could you say, okay, player X, I want to see how he responds late in game when plays are going through him. And then tomorrow we'll do that for player Y. And tomorrow, do you, do, Does it get that calculated, or is it more just let him play and, and evaluate from there? Yeah, um, kind of the way our system is set up during the regular season is, is it's not a lot of play calls. Uh, we kind of just put our guys in situations to – play the game of basketball and um, we allow those guys freedom to do that and so we want to do the same thing here in summer league and, and just kind of evaluate um, how guys are picking up um, on the different ways of how to play the game of basketball um, um, I will tell you one thing that we we're, we are doing is um, 
we're trying to put uh, Ben Mathen in, in ISO situations and um, <clears throat> and maybe looking at the numbers on, on that because uh, he's the guy who uh, who wants the ball um, in all kind of situations and and he's really good at ISO situations so we wanted to look at the numbers and um, and and show him the numbers and let him know that okay. You know, the numbers are great. We're going to give you some ISO situations. Or the numbers are not so great, so let's continue to move the ball and, and, and play the game the right way. So uh, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at this summer. Interesting. Uh, Janera Pargo is with us here again. Pacers assistant. He'll be leading the summer league uh, out in Vegas coming up Saturday night. A handful of games for the Pacers and their rookie group, plus a couple of young guys. Uh, let's go with the first-round picks, if you don't mind, Coach. Your first in-person impressions of, uh, let's start with Jairus Walker. Um, a very versatile player. The guy can guard. Uh, he can dribble, pass, and shoot. Um, long arms, athletic. Um, I mean, there's nothing on the floor that he can't do. Uh, so we got to find ways to uh, to get him involved. Um, talented. Um, great personality. Uh, looking forward to see what he can do uh, uh, this summer out in Vegas. Then, uh, go ahead. Uh, ben Shepard. Yeah. Um, just a happy guy. Um, great energy. Great effort. Uh, I think defensively he's going to surprise a lot of people. Um, he can really shoot the basketball. Plays the game at a, at a, at a, at a high level. Um, so we're looking forward to seeing him as well. Um, two great rookies, Coach. Do you find it's? Do you think it's a bigger challenge? You know, most players. I think when I watch an NBA game, I sit there and I watch and I think to myself, <clears throat> you know, even the the twelfth guy on a bench is probably the greatest player. You know, there are two guys in a bar right now talking about how they saw that guy play in high school, right? Like they're the greatest yeah. player at everywhere they've been along the way occasionally you do get guys that make it to the league because they've been blue-collar guys throughout the course of their career and not necessarily natural scores. Do you find it harder, which is the bigger challenge, I guess, for guys that have been Swiss Army knives but not great scorers to have to learn? Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you to develop an offensive game or for guys that are natural scorers to have to learn to do the other things if there are other scorers on the floor with them? That's another great question. Um, I'll give you guys a quick story. I played with uh, Tracy McGrady uh, in Atlanta and at this point in his career he was uh, playing maybe uh, 15 to 17 minutes uh, coming off the bench and you know didn't know where his shot attempts were coming from. And so I asked him, which is harder, uh, being Tracy McGrady now or being Tracy McGrady in Orlando and Houston where, you know, you had to come out and score 27 points a night and uh, and the ball was coming to you every time and you had to perform. And, uh, and he said to me, it's definitely harder, uh, you know, playing 15, 17 minutes a night, not knowing where shots are coming from and, and having to have, have to do the little things. 
So, um, yeah, I, I think it's harder to um, come to this league as a scorer and then have to change your game to being a role player and, you know, playing defense, taking charges, and, and doing all the little things. Coach, last one for me. And again, Gennaro Pargo is with us here, Pacers assistant. He's got the responsibility of leading the Summer League in Vegas. Um, Isaiah Jackson, obviously a, a big year for him. Anytime you reach kind of this point of your rookie contract, uh, the importance of these years kind of rise. Certainly when you guys draft him, you knew there was some molding that, that needed to be done. Uh, what have you seen from Isaiah here in camp as he enters a pretty critical year? Uh, Isaiah's been great. Um, a lot of leadership. Uh, I've seen him, uh, you know, pulling our, 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 our big rookies aside and, and and teaching them things we we taught him a couple of years ago. So his leadership has been great on the floor. He's been he's been everywhere, catching lobs, blocking shots. Um, just his voice, his presence on the defensive end. Um, it's been night and day. So he's he's been great so far uh, this summer, and, and we're looking for big things from him this summer. Now, coach, my last question for you: If I'm not mistaken, and you correct me if I'm wrong. When you were at Arkansas, you overlapped between Nolan Richardson and Stan Heath. Am I correct in that? Uh, no, um, I was only with Nolan. Okay, that's okay. So Stan Heath would have been right after I guess you left. But th- I'm glad because Nolan Richardson was the guy I was going to ask you about. I absolutely loved when I was in high school is when Arkansas really burst through with Nolan Richardson on the map with Lee Mayberry and Todd Day and Oliver Miller and 40 Minutes of mm-hmm. Hell and all that. I-, I loved Nolan Richardson as a coach because – I just thought he was a defensive innovator of the fact that like, if you weren't going to go out there and be a bulldog and play for 40 minutes, you weren't getting on the floor. I'm just curious if your best Nolan Richardson story or just what kind of guy he was as a coach. Uh, you know what? Um, I thought Nolan was a great coach. Um, he wasn't just stuck in his ways. Uh, I think offensively, my senior year, we must have tried three different offenses three different offenses because, I mean, we couldn't get anything to work. So for him to be flexible, to, to change his offense three different times, just trying to give us the best opportunity to win games, that, that really stuck with me. Uh, a quick story is, uh, um, you know, we would we would come into the gym for practice and Nolan would just put 40 minutes on the clock, throw a ball out and say, okay, let's go. And, and we would just practice for 40 minutes and um, – we we asked him about our defensive philosophy, and he said, "Just just be like dogs with rabies." <laughs> yeah, well, that's what it looked like, right? <laughs> that's what it looked like. That's that's how he wanted us to play defense. I mean, we never did defensive of scouts. Uh, we never worried about what the other team were going to run because we didn't allow them to run it. We was just out there like dogs with rabies running around and causing havoc. You know, it, it. I don't know about you. You probably saw him with more frequency in your post-playing career than have I. But the first time that I saw it, when he like quit dyeing his hair or whatever, and all of a sudden, like he had the white hair and the goatee, like I was like, "Who in the world is that?" Were you <laughs> stunned by that? He kind of looked like, was, <laughs> honestly, like he looked a little bit like Colonel Sanders. Truth be told, yeah, he actually did. Yeah, I, I was stunned by that. I think that was uh, just just years of coaching. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I mean, fifteen rabid dogs will do that to yeah, you, right? Sure. It would do that. Yes, it will. Coach, we'll, we'll end with this. I'll ask for some confirmation on this. Jeremiah Johnson, obviously Pacers TV sideline reporter, he uh, retweeted us last night when we said that we were having you on the show, and he uh, labeled you as the assistant coach with the best basketball skills in the NBA. 
right now. Are you putting your basketball skills up with anybody in the league right now from a coaching standpoint? Uh, from a coaching standpoint, yes. I, I would do that. But I'm not one of those coaches who still think he could play in the NBA. <laughs> those, days, those days are long gone for me. And you got to clarify that, right? <clears throat> You have to, absolutely. <laughs> he's been a busy man throughout the draft workouts, obviously working out with some guys, and now he's going to lead a few of them out in Vegas. Gennaro Pargo with us here on the Payless Lickers Hotline. Coach, congrats on the opportunity. I've heard glowing remarks from pretty much everybody within the organization about you and your ability to coach, so congrats on this opportunity, and looking forward to watching the boys uh, here over the next handful of days. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you guys having me on. All right, 9 o'clock hour here. Kevin Aquari, I hope uh, you guys had a safe 4th of July, a little bit back to reality today. It's a steamy one in Indy. believe it's going to be that way again tomorrow. Some rain in the forecast. Looks like temperature is going to drop a little bit here coming up this weekend. Jake, I did see, I, I missed a little bit of Colts news late, late last week. Is that right? I'd say a little bit is a fair way of saying it. Um, and I can't remember. My days all jumble together, so my apologies. But, of course, we now know that Isaiah Rod and, and the one thing I think that was interesting, Kevin, was we knew going into it that Isaiah Rogers was the player that was, you know, part of this investigation in the NFL for gambling. And Adam Schefter had initially come out to say, you know, he's going to be suspended a year. I think it was Adam Schefter. And I thought if he wagered on the Colts, we already have precedent for you know Calvin Ridley being suspended one season for wagering on NFL games. You would think that wagering on your own team would increase even above and beyond that. And in fact, it did because Isaiah Rogers' suspension is listed as, is listed as indefinitely. Yeah, he's got to uh, apply for reinstatement, which is what Ridley had to do as well. Uh, Rashad Berry, backup defensive end, who's had kind of a journeyman route already in the NFL, uh, was released as well. He was the other that was involved in this. Yeah, and care if I chime in or right there on Barry because I did have a few people re- reach out to me late in the week and be like, "Oh boy, another Colts player." You know, like they're they're like, "Oh man, there's two because the headlines could easily say two Colts players suspended for a year and cut by the team. Rashard Barry joined the Colts in early January 2023. So, and again, I don't know this for sure, but it is my assumption that when Rashad Barry was betting on, I, I, I would guess, NFL games, he did this when he was not with the Colts. Um, he actually was with, I think, Jacksonville a little bit last season. I believe he was with Detroit as well, which Detroit we know has had a slew of uh, gambling-related violations within their roster. So I, I don't think this one screams as a... Colts player, you know, under Chris Ballard's watch, that sort of thing. I am assuming that this happened before he joined the Colts. In Rogers' case, though, obviously a Colts player, obviously a Chris Ballard draft pick. And honestly, when I saw the news, Jake, I wasn't shocked at all by the length. I wasn't shocked at all that the Colts cut him, what, 30 minutes after the NFL released the statement, if he, if it was even that, that long. It's just a reminder to me of the stupidity that Isaiah Rogers um, did in risking 
such a golden opportunity. And I understand the NFL is in bed with gambling apps and all of that, but if 99% of the league can follow the rules, then why can't you? Do they? I mean, if you look at the numbers right now, I mean, what have we had? Probably 10 of the... But he... You know, ninety man roster times thirty two. I, I don't know what the math is, but I'd say ninety eight, ninety nine percent of the league is following it. And he and I think his own teammates have said that. EJ Speed said it very bluntly. I thought in the days after the Isaiah Rogers thing just happened, and saying it's pretty simple, just don't bet. It's not. It's not worth the risk. But here is my question, and I don't know the answer. Was Isaiah Rogers found? to be guilty of this and Barry because of an investigation that was specifically targeting them because something had been tipped off or were they caught up in a league-wide investigation? In other words, the analogy I used the other day, Kevin, there are two ways that an impaired driver gets pulled over and pulled off the road. One is that impaired driver is driving erratically and someone calls in and says, there's someone on the road that looks like they're impaired. And the police find them and pull them over and determine they're impaired and remove them from the road. The other is the police set up an area where they start pulling people over and randomly checking them and determine, well, that person is impaired and remove them from the road. Which manner is what got Isaiah Rogers off the football field? Did the NFL get a phone call that someone was was acting erratically and therefore that person was investigated and and he and Barry were found in that? Or were they doing a league-wide investigation and these are the only that turned up? Yeah, I, I don't know for sure, I guess, to answer. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, I think it was like the geolocation. So for anybody that, and I know this because I was just in Michigan this past weekend, you know, when you cross state lines and you're trying to use a gambling app, oftentimes it will say, all right, we need to confirm your location. And in the states that gambling is not allowed, it will not let you bet. So there is a location tag with all of these gambling apps. And I think that is part of it of... The NFL has relationships with the respective gambling companies that if you do make a bet, they are contractually obligated to release that information to the league, whether that is a location, a.k.a. at the team facility, or whether that is the type of bet in that you can bet on other sports, you can't bet on the NFL, though. So don't bet on the NFL and don't bet at the team facility. Those are the two big things. The thing that I could see collecting players and I think now it's abundantly clear hell if it's clear to you and I it's got to be clear to somebody who's playing in the league but one thing Kevin that if I was an NFL player I would not have been aware I mean I'm sure they were made aware of it but that surprised me is you and I have been I mean you know you're in the Colts locker room every Wednesday when I worked in television, notably, I was at Colts Availability every Wednesday. I think they had, I'm trying to think of that, Wednesday Availability, maybe Friday back then, and then, of course, after games, whatever else. When you go into an NFL locker room in the middle of the winter, you know, you go in there and you get a glimpse of what the day looks like for those players before practice begins because that's when the media is in there. And guys are walking around. Some of them are getting like getting out of the the whirlpool to get, you know, where they're loosening up their legs. Some are getting treatment on a knee. Some are just in there 
to, to look at film before practice and they're walking in and out of the locker room and there are always Kevin it's like literally a sampling size of life and I'm saying all of this for people that, that don't have the privilege of the access that we've had you walk into the locker room and there are 70 lockers and in those 70 lockers which encompass you know obviously the the practice squad and the regular roster or whatever else there's always one or two guys that are just like sitting at their locker and it looks like they're almost like going looking over the mail there are always one or two guys that are sitting there maybe they're playing a video game somebody's got a, a video game system set up console in their locker and there's a couple of guys playing them a couple of guys might be playing nerf basketball or something and there's always one or two guys that, that, that come walking in and they walk over to their locker and they're wearing shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops they walk over to their locker and they unlock it and they pull out, you know, look at a couple of things that have been left by a trainer and they grab their phone and they sit down at their chair in front of their locker like all of us do and they're looking through their phone and they're probably checking Facebook and Twitter and text messages and email and whatever. And I would imagine it would be that they also flip open one of the apps. Oh, you know what? I... I played at Boise State, and one of the guys that I on my dorm floor is a baseball player now. He plays for the Padres, and I just realized he's starting tonight. That'd be fun. I'm going to put down 20 bucks on the Padres to win against the Braves tonight. That'd be fun. And he puts it on there. And he's inside the facility, and he has now violated an NFL league rule. I think it would have been very easy for players to fall victim to that before. I, I don't know about now, but I, how clear was that made to them? Yeah, I, I think that is the, that's a fair question on the clarity of it. I mean, clearly, if you look at the numbers, it's not like it's been five players on every single team or even bigger numbers than that. So clearly, a large, large, large portion of the NFL population has been able to follow these rules. Um, I think some of that is on the league. I think some of that is on agents of these players to make it abundantly clear that they do not do this. Um, I'll, I'll go back to the stupidity you know, word that I use with Rodgers because, again, we're talking about you rank the top five Colts on the roster, most important, greatest opportunities sit on a platter for them in 2023. Rodgers would be near the top of the list. I mean, we're talking the final year of his rookie contract, a day three pick, comes from a small school. It's make or break. The depth chart is wide, wide open, and he risks it for these bets and there's a report out there that you know what he had a thousand dollar prop bet on the over under of a Colts running back you know that's where you get in the slippery slope of integrity oh sure let's Mm -hmm. just take for example Zach Moss Zach Moss ran for over 100 yards to end the season so does that mean in the in the days leading up to the game on Sunday Isaiah Rogers was out of practice for three days and was like damn Zach Moss is getting all the reps at running back no Deion Jackson no you know Jonathan Taylor was hurt at the time I'm trying to think who even the other running backs were on the roster he clearly knew he clearly had intel inside information and so now he goes and places a bet and if that word gets out now all of a sudden you've lost a little integrity of the game and if that snowballs that's what the NFL cannot afford so I'm curious if that's the bet that set off the kind of the, the warning signs to the, the sports books when they see a wager of four figures and they're like, huh, interesting. Because usually sports books like to highlight like right. big money wagers that hit. I wonder if they like, saw a thousand dollar over under. Like, well, huh, that's how the Alabama baseball game bet mm-hmm. happened. So remember that story? It was Alabama, I think, versus LSU. 
and the bet was placed in a Cincinnati, I want to say it was the sports book attached to Great American Ballpark. That bet was placed there. It was a significant amount for an Alabama LSU baseball game in Ohio. And that triggered something in their system of like, what in the world is this? Right. And they're able to find out that well, the Alabama manager had tipped off that listen, his ace wasn't starting. And and that's how all of that unfolded. There have been, over the course of time, sports gambling scandals in college athletics that the red flag was when a you know Boston College basketball, or Boston College might have been football, but you know a school that normally gets, and I'm just literally throwing out random numbers, a school that normally gets eighty thousand dollars of activity in a Las Vegas sports book per game, all of a sudden has four hundred and fifty thousand dollars being wagered on it. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, something you know something's going on here. That's how those things get tipped off. So that that's entirely possible. The thing that I've said about this, Kevin, and I'm going to repeat what I've said numerous times. The the NFL's biggest concern is they want to make sure that, and don't kid yourself. I don't mean you. I'm saying in gen, people in general. The NFL, when they say they're worried about the integrity of the game, what they're worried about is that you can trust the integrity of your wager. Because the NFL knows. The NFL is the 800-pound gorilla in this country, and a huge, huge, huge aspect of that is gambling. And so they want to absolutely make certain that you know that when you place a wager on a team or a parlay or an aspect of the game in a otherwise game that is meaningless to you between the Cleveland Browns and the Buffalo Bills on Thursday night football. They want you watching that game. They want you interested in that game. And they know that the second that you no longer feel like placing a $10 wager on that game is something that is in your best interest because it might be tainted. And so therefore you're not going to place that wager and therefore your interest level in that particular otherwise innocuous and meaningless game to you is taken away. That is the NFL's biggest fear. Don't kid yourself. When they talk about the integrity of the game, what they mean is your the integrity of your bet. They mean product too. Because in 1960-whatever, when they suspended Alex Karras and Paul Horning for a year because they bet, that was because of the the product and they want you to watch the product but, but even back know, then even back then though kevin before apps and everything else i mean but they weren't in bed with the apps then understood but what i'm saying is they knew i mean you know the the daily line in 1960 you pick up the cleveland plain dealer and go to the sports page even though it was illegal everywhere but las vegas they still put the lines in the back of the pages i mean they still put the wagers in there they knew that it was it was taking place i mean i get I'm just saying they they absolutely know and to your point now they are in bed with the apps and so they want to make sure that people that their customer which is in this case the app their business partner has an integrity of its product right I mean all, all the way around I know Matt wanted to join in on this conversation Matt good morning to you well morning guys how are you doing doing well how are you good um with the uh comment uh, Jake was making about the confusion. I guess the Jameson Williams, he bet at his team hotel on a college football game. So it's not just the facility. It's any team-related activity. And with the, is it a field sobriety checkpoint or is it anything like that? 
the timing of it, didn't like 12 players all get suspended, a couple for the Commanders, a couple for the Lions, a couple for the Colts, all at the same time? I think they all were in related to 2022 activities. I don't know if, you know, all the all of them happened in September, October, November from last year. I, I do think to your point, Matt, it, again, more clarity on exactly team facility, team hotel, team buses, you know, team airplane. I mean, that stuff, I think, is a bit confusing there. And it's probably why Jameson Williams only got six games or the guy for the Titans. Um Petite Ferrier, their, their big offense tackle from the for the Buckeyes uh, from from Ohio State, he just got six games, and that fell in line with the. I think he did it actually at the Titans facility. He bet on, I believe it was some sort of other sport. Maybe Man, it was the, the hotel. I can totally an Ohio State game get benefit of it out there. I, I mean, again, I, now I, I think now it's clear to everybody, and I would assume it was very clear to the players from the get go. But I mean, can't you see it though? Like you, you sure. And that's you, why you, you got an away game. You fly into the team hotel. You're laying around on a Saturday, and you know you're. Yeah, what are we going to do here? We just we just had walk through, and we had training table, whatever. And I'm back in the room, and Georgia and Fresno State are getting ready to kick off. Yeah, I'll put twenty bucks on this. What? Boom! You're in the team hotel. I mean, that's that's pretty nitpicky, but hey, rules are rules, right? I think we all have rules at the companies that we work at. That sometimes you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Why? We don't hear. No, right? not None. here. Uh, Petit Ferrier against six games for the Titans. Uh, the other big, I thought, AFC South news, and this is not gambling related. This is performance enhancing drugs related. Uh, Jacksonville left tackle Cam Robinson, four games for PEDs. So that means week one here at Lucas Oil Stadium, Trevor Lawrence will be dealing with a backup left tackle for Jacksonville. I said when the schedule came out, I think that's a, I think that is the ideal time to play the Jags if you're the Colts. Ideal time. Opener, hype, offseason hype, intrigue, all of it. Throw in a backup left tackle. Does Jacksonville come back to earth a little bit? There's a lot of expectation on him, Kevin. Didn't a they, lot. like, weren't they on earth last year and then they just got hot for a month? Yeah, but that, I mean, there is... And, like, they almost got blown off the field in their playoff game. They had to make some historic comeback. I feel like, at times, we got too caught up in the moment no, they, Jacksonville. their playoff game was Cincinnati. They no, had a chance. no, no. They had a huge comeback with the Chargers. Oh, you're talking about before they got eliminated. Yeah, then they lost to Kansas City in the next yeah, yeah. round. That's right. They had a huge comeback. You're right. Like, they had to beat Tennessee in the last week of the season to make the playoffs. They easily could have lost that. I mean, Tennessee literally all, all just I'm saying is there is leg. now a lot of expectation on them because it seemed like you could visually see things coming together for them. Yeah, I, that is fair. And they are, I think, kind of them and the Lions are in that, oh, yeah, they're the team. You know, they're all of a sudden going to make another jump forward. I, I'll say last thing on the Isaiah Rogers front, and this gets back to, again, just how much of an opportunity he's thrown away here. Right now, three weeks from today, the Colts will have their first training camp practice. And Dallas Flowers will be a starting corner in that training camp practice. And I would say right now, Jake, I'd feel pretty confident to say that Dallas Flowers will be a week one starter for the Colts. And if you rewind to December 15th, the midway point of the final month of the year last year, Dallas Flowers had yet to play a defensive snap in the NFL had yet to play a defensive snap in the NFL. And here we are, seven, eight months later, three weeks before training camp, and that dude would, I think, qualify as a 
very good chance to be a starter at one of the most important positions on the football team. I mean, we're not talking right guard. We're not talking linebacker. We're talking corner in today's NFL. It's just wild to me how that position group, and it's not just the Rodgers news, the trade of Stephon Gilmore as well, how much that position group is overturned, and again, how much of an opportunity Rodgers has thrown away because it's not like he needed to do a whole lot to secure a starting job potentially make a second contract, and boom, all of a sudden, he's making the $2.5 million he was supposed to make this year, and now he's signing a three-year, $12 million deal next year. Now, do you remember... With two kids under the age of one, by the way. Do you remember this time, like a year... Well, it would have been about 10 months ago. Who on this program was the one that was the most high on Dallas Flowers in, through training camp and through the preseason? Anybody recall? A stroke of an ego is not something that I missed during... Uh, now... I'm going to confess. I'm going to confess something to you. It was because of his college mascot. Four things. He had a oh, like only a, four. He had a tipped pass interception in the end zone in one of their preseason games, and I thought, well, that's good hand-eye coordination. Then I was like, well, who who is this guy? And then they said his name was Dallas Flowers. Well, I liked his last name, and then I thought it was cool that he was named after a city that has an NFL team. So there's two, three. I looked at it and I went, well, cornerback is a position where like, you know, he, he can return some punts or whatever. Maybe he can make the roster. And then four, and this was the big one, he went to uh, Pittsburgh State, which is the Gorillas, and is like a division two or three power. And when I was at University of Kansas, I had a buddy from Pittsburgh, Kansas, who was a big Gorillas fan, and they're a big deal there. So those four added together instantly made me realize this was the next Thai law. Oh. That, that's the exact formula that I used. So there was zero football acumen for the most part in what I did in my evaluation. Is that why he didn't make your top 10 most indispensable Colts list? Because I'm looking right at it and I don't see Dallas Flowers listed here. No, I, I, I'm I'm openly mocking my own criteria. Couldn't pass Danny uh, Penter on that list. Yeah, or Rigoberto Sanchez. Rigoberto Sanchez was a key loss for them. 4-12-1 because the punter tore mm-hmm. his Achilles. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. what what positions were last year of Danny Pinter is one. He Danny Pinter, would you agree, let them down? Yeah, I'd put five other offensive linemen above Danny Pinter in terms of people that let down the Colts. Uh, understood, Pinter. but what I'm saying is if Danny Pinter was a guy that they had a lot of hope and expectation for last year, that I think his inability to deliver on that had an impact on their season. Are we doing the show from training camp? I saw a lot of morning practices announced with the schedule. I think I believe we are, yes. Uh, 13 open practices for the Colts at training camp, for those that missed it. Uh, Seven of those in the morning. That is a very, I shouldn't say very, but that is definitely a shorter Grand Park schedule than we're used to at the Colts. Agreed. July 26th will be the first practice, again, three weeks from today. The last one will be that joint session with the Bears on August 17th. There are a lot of like breaks within that schedule as well. So there are a couple Saturday night practices. Again, both the Bears practices are at 6 p.m. That's uh, Wednesday, the 16th of August, Thursday, the 17th of August, uh, a Sunday afternoon practice. So you do get more probably weekend times, but just in general, from a quantity standpoint, a little bit of a shorter camp schedule at Grand Park. You're five there. Do the how many practices how many public practices with the Bears? Two. 
back-to-back 16th and the 17th, and that leads right into our back nine event on the 18th, right? Did you see Justin Fields uh, doing the gentleman start your engines for the NASCAR? Yeah. People were getting on him because it was low energy. I I thought it was more odd that he was wearing a long sleeve sweater. I think they had him in a hotel. I don't think that was outside. It looked like it was like a a hotel. He's getting ready for the rain. With the weather, yeah. Uh, again, our back nine event will be August 18th. So right after the two joint practices with the Bears, you can head out. Uh, actually, go to our fan page. This is a great page that we have up on our website. Um, if you go to the events section, some great shots of the back nine. Which back is nine is cool. Downtown. Um, a great golf event entertainment. You've got two big screen TVs. Get a view of downtown. Um, so we'll be out there for our – that is a fan golf outing uh, presented by Franciscan Health, August 18th. 10 a.m. is when things begin. 11 a.m. officially underway. Lunch will be provided throughout the day. JMV is going to be broadcasting live from there. So looking forward to that again. August 18th, that is a Friday, the perfect way to start your weekend a little early.